Living with Diabetes, a podcast from Diabetes Victoria with Jack Fitzpatrick. Hello, one and all. Thanks for tuning in to the official Diabetes Victoria podcast. This is a great forum for those of us impacted by diabetes, whether it be directly or indirectly, to discuss ideas, share stories and build our diabetes community. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, ex-Melbourne and Hawthorne AFL player and current Diabetes Victoria ambassador. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Kulin Nations, where we are speaking from today, as well as all the lands across Australia, and pay my respects to all elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening in. And it is a very special guest I have with me today, and in many ways it's full circle given that this man was the first guest of the official Diabetes Victoria podcast. I'm talking with Craig Bennett, our CEO at Diabetes Victoria, who is retiring from full-time work at the end of March. I've asked Craig to reflect on his nine years as CEO of Diabetes Victoria, the changes he's seen, and what they've meant for people living with and who are impacted by diabetes, how much Diabetes Victoria has evolved over the past nine years, and what the main challenges are that lie ahead. Now, Craig, it is interesting given you were our first podcast guest and uh, you have done a lot in a, a very impressive career, but uh, how are you feeling ahead of your, your head of finishing up at Diabetes Vic? Oh, a little bit nervous, uh, Jack, um, uh, but also um, in a reflective mood, uh, looking back at all the things that have happened in diabetes over the past nine years um, and also looking forward to being involved in a whole range of things on a part-time basis going forward. So before we look forward, and, and I suppose for Diabetes Vic and, and yourself, it's probably worth looking back at your career, I guess, you know, overall, and a health economist by training at the University of York um, and a fellow of the Australasian College of Health Service Management. You've held senior management positions both privately and publicly uh, in the private and public sectors. Um, but it's been March 2013 that you started at Diabetes Victoria. Um before that, you were the CEO of the Peter McCullum Cancer Centre um, and before that, the Chief Executive of the Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth. Um, you were interested in the economics of health and how it impact or different parts impact the health system, um, but also good evidence-based public health policy is one of your passions. These um, nine years, it's a long time. Uh, it is indeed. And when I look back over the past nine years, I think um, there are four main um, significant changes that I've um, been associated with and have observed in relation to diabetes. I think the first is um, the continued growth in you know, fantastic technology. We've seen um, amazing developments, particularly in continuous glucose monitoring and flash monitoring, moving away from um, people with diabetes having to prick their fingers to take bloods uh, and now can be done in a less painful way uh, by just scanning uh, a smartphone, dev smartphone device over a um, over a button uh, inserted in your um, shoulder, or um, through lots of other means um, that aren't as invasive um, and having such an impact on the quality of life for people with diabetes. So, as I look back, there have been uh, amazing developments in technology, uh, making uh, the lives of people affected by diabetes much easier. I guess the other big uh, change has been in, in medications. Last year, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the first medical use of insulin, uh, yet um, we're seeing a revolution in oral therapies, and in particular, 
uh, I'd refer to two classes of drugs, one of which is called uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and basically, these drugs uh, flush uh, excess glucose out through your wee. They also have um, uh, reputedly benefits to um, kidney health uh, and cardiovascular health, but they're also very good at reducing the amount of glucose in, in blood. The other class of drugs are what's called GLP-1 receptor agonists, and these drugs basically stimulate pancreas to produce insulin. So these are drugs that could ultimately replace um, insulin and metformin as first-line therapies. They've been subject to uh, a plethora of clinical trials throughout the world. Um, in some countries, uh, they're moving on and introducing these as first-line oral therapies for people with diabetes. Uh, but we are on the cusp of another revolution uh, in our medications for diabetes. So 100 years after insulin, um, we're moving on. Um, and uh, 60 years after metformin became widely used, uh, there are other possibilities. I think the third main trend that uh, I've observed is a focus on diabetes. It's not just a physical condition, but a psychosocial condition. In other words, uh, we're far more attuned to how people cope, uh, how their emotional health is, uh, and as we've seen in the pandemic, uh, how diabetes can impact on people's mental health. And finally, uh, the relentless surge of digitization, where we are much better at communicating with people with diabetes using digital means, whether it's by uh, Zoom, uh, by people phoning the NDSS helpline, which Diabetes Victoria operates on behalf of Diabetes Australia, 1-800-637-700, where we can provide lots of advice to people with diabetes. But also we're very good at now sending out messages to hundreds of thousands of registrants quickly when we need to, for example, during the lockdown and more recently during the floods. So some big changes in diabetes over the past nine years. Certainly has been. I mean, I'm personally coming up for my 10-year anniversary this year, which it doesn't, it feels like yesterday in many ways, and then it feels like much more than that in others uh, of, of being diagnosed and making me uh, making me feel old with so many changes. But in terms of these changes you've discussed, I mean, the tech, the medications, I suppose the the changing view of diabetes from just, you know, as you said, not just the physical health condition, but also the mental side of things that come with it and also our ways of interacting. What have these meant for people with diabetes and, and I, I suppose those working in, in the field as well? I think fundamentally people with diabetes are now better informed. There's a whole lot of resources available that they can access pretty easily through um, the NSS website, uh, through the Diabetes Australia and through the Diabetes Victoria website. And these resources are available in you know, a whole suite of um, different languages for people uh, from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. I also think people with diabetes are now better connected. Uh, for a long time, Diabetes Victoria has um, overseen about 90 peer support groups throughout Victoria. Um, I think we've learned now that they can be more easily connected through Zoom or Microsoft Teams, uh, and that's much easier because it doesn't mean that people have to get together. Um, and the technology has also transformed not only uh, people's devices and so forth, but it's also transformed how we communicate, how we keep in contact. So I think people are better informed. I think they're better connected. I also think they're better engaged. We've seen um, a lot of people now wanting to get involved in um, their care and treatment. 
in policy development and in research trials. Uh, they don't want to be consulted with at the end of the process. They don't want to be engaged, uh, would you like to participate in a trial? They want to get involved in designing the trial. They want to get involved in having a say about what type of research is funded. They want to get involved because they can see the benefits of them influencing what health professionals say and do. I also think there's been um, a far greater sensitivity about um, how people cope with diabetes, uh, their emotional issues, uh, their mental health issues in certain circumstances, but also how people refer to people with diabetes. We don't talk about diabetics. We talk about people who live with diabetes. And this has tripped into a focus on stigma, on discrimination, um, and on how we use language to describe people with diabetes. So I think the main changes I outlined before have had a profound impact on people with diabetes and overwhelmingly for the good. There's no doubt about that. And it's, you know, we talk about that stigma. We've done a, you know, a few podcast episodes on stigma and, and things like that. And you would argue that uh, the way that that is in the mental health and, and those kinds of things, that even though it's not necessarily a treatment for the diabetes itself, it's as important or more important than the actual diabetes treatment. But it's interesting you talk about the people being better engaged and involved and, and wanting, I suppose, more decision or, or power. I think that's all interconnected, isn't it, in terms of um, they are better connected with each other and, and those peer support groups because it is so much easier now than it probably used to be. But um, also that they are better informed and, and there is so much more information out there and people can look into things more. And it's, it's not as simple as going to your doctor and hearing what the best uh, option is or your endocrinologist or your diabetes educator. It's so much more than that. And as you said, people are now able to start making their own decisions or looking into their own things in, in consultation with their diabetes care team. Yeah, and I think that's got uh, lots of benefits. And I would um, point out the, the great work that the Australian Centre Behavioural Research in Diabetes has done. This is a centre um, jointly funded by Deakin University and Diabetes Victoria. It's uh, been a world leader in uh, reframing the language that's used by health professionals, the media and general society about how we talk about people with diabetes. It's led the way in terms of developing a focus on emotional health, uh, particularly during the lockdown uh, associated with the pandemic. Um, and it's also had a great focus on on stigma. So one of the, the benefits of the better information and the better connection that people with diabetes have now got is that there's an increasing intolerance of stigma, of discrimination, um, of the myths associated with diabetes, and also about how people refer to uh, people with diabetes. And I think overwhelmingly that's been um, reassuring. One of the, the challenges of diabetes is that people think it's only them or that um, they're alone. And we see this uh, a lot with um, our camps um, and the benefits of us running camps for young people over a generation now has been uh, that they mix with other people with diabetes and they realise they are not alone. Um, and that's a tremendously powerful uh, reinforcement uh, that they can seek help, uh, that they can have a friendship group and that other people will understand what they're going through. That's really important. There's no doubt about that. I mean, having been to so many camps in, you know, over, the, over the years, and I, it's, it is great to see because I, I always say that you know, looking at the children or the teenagers who are living with diabetes um, and, you, you know, by definition, all, all you want to do as a teenager or a child is fit in. And, and when you're living with diabetes, you have something that by definition makes you different or makes you stand out. And I think it's great for, for these people um, of all ages, but particularly the kids in, in my view, that they see that, yeah, they're not alone in this and there are other people like them and it doesn't make them 
any less worth or valuable as a person. It actually arguably makes them even stronger than, than most kids their age because they're dealing with something that most other people would not be able to dare to understand. Indeed, yeah. Um, and, and as well, you go back with, you know, we talked about the stigma and the, you know, the, the behaviour research and, you know, all those kinds of things. I mean, it was, as I said, it was only 10 years ago. In some ways, it was a long, long time ago, but sometimes it feels like yesterday. But, you know, I, I was two weeks before I turned 21 when I was diagnosed. And, um, you know, I had all those misconceptions and I suppose those stigmas with, you know, diabetes. that I thought you could only get it when you're a little bit older or you're a little bit overweight or you, you didn't eat well. I mean, I, I didn't understand at all how a 20-year-old who was playing AFL football at the time could be diagnosed because all those misconceptions and stigmas you just spoke about were, were things that I had in my own head personally before I knew that I could get it. Um, but we talked about um, the changes in diabetes itself. You know, we talked about how, um, you know, the, the different tech, the medications, the fact that it's not just a health condition anymore, it's, it's the mental side of things. Um, then also what these changes meant for the people living with diabetes and those impacted by diabetes. How has Diabetes Victoria itself changed over the past nine years since you've been working there? Well, a couple of um, trends as I reflect back over my time leading Diabetes Victoria. I think the main one is um, we have sharpened our focus on um, consumer engagement um, and come to a view that it is really important to focus on the lived experience of people with diabetes. And now, Diabetes Victoria had always been involved um, with consumer engagement, um, but since um, we've um, uh, struck a consumer and community engagement framework, um, we've established a, a vibrant community advisory, a consumer advisory committee. There's a formal subcommittee of the board where we have a broad range of people uh, reflecting different experiences with diabetes um, that advise me and the board about what's really important to them. So rather than us telling people what's going on, uh, this is an opportunity for us to listen uh, to what's important in people's lives as they live with the challenges of diabetes. Uh, and that's particularly important because it gives them um, an outlet, a sense in which uh, the board of Diabetes Victoria is listening and will respond. Now, the board of Diabetes Victoria does have a number of people who either live with diabetes or have been associated with diabetes because they've had children grow up with diabetes. Um, but it's not the same as having um, a group of people who um, are independent of the board, uh, advising the board, this is what's really important to us. And as an indication of the importance, we've redefined our values as an organisation. And the value statement that we have, I think, is pretty pertinent. It says, above all, we value and respect the lived experience of Victorians affected by diabetes. This is at the core of everything we do. Now, we're a very um, long-standing and, we believe, successful organisation that's worked hard since 1953 to reduce the impact of diabetes in the Victorian community. But since I've been there, we've had, I think, a laser-like focus on saying our main role is to relate to, support, empower and campaign for all Victorians affected by or at risk of diabetes. And in our value statement, we've made that explicit. I think the other things that um, have also been um, trends at Diabetes Victoria is a focus on evaluation and evidence. As you said, there's a lot of myths about diabetes. How does a 21-year-old guy playing you know, football at the elite level end up with type 1 diabetes? Um, well, what we're on about is um, making sure that the programs and services we deliver are targeted and effective. 
And that means that we have to evaluate um, what we do, uh, its impact on people, and what the evidence is. Um, so there are a lot of myths, a lot of misconceptions, um, but uh, we've been promoting at Diabetes Victoria a focus on the evidence uh, and the evaluation to make sure that what we do is targeted and effective. We do get money from both the state and Commonwealth governments, and we have to make sure that money is well used. Uh, but also in all the things we do as an organisation, we want to make sure that they're targeted and effective. The other major th thread of the past nine years at Diabetes Victoria has been a focus on quality. We're now a fully quality accredited organisation under ISO um, uh, uh, standards, um, and we now have that certified for the next three years. That gives people uh, confidence that when they deal with us, they're dealing with an organisation that is um, accredited at the highest level, um, and also uh, for the staff, they know that uh, there is an ethos of continuous improvement in the organisation. So for me, uh, lived experience, evaluation and quality have been some of the pillars that I've constructed at Diabetes Victoria um, and uh, I think will uh, put the organisation in good stead as we go forward. Now, at a, a different level, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on uh, an inclusive culture. Um, you know, we're aware that uh, lots of things are going on um, about how we engage with people in different parts of the society. Um, I've always had a particular focus on research, and Diabetes Victoria has got a great record in supporting research over a number of years. And our members overwhelmingly tell us that the one thing they want us to do above all is to generate money to support research because that leads to, uh, in the short term, hopefully an improvement in the quality of lives of people with diabetes. And in the longer term, perhaps it'll unlock the cure to type 1 diabetes in particular. In my time, I've also put a lot of emphasis on building sustainable partnerships with our funding uh, organisations uh, and also more generally um, in conjunction with other organisations. Now, in Melbourne, there are fantastic research groups such as uh, the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute, the Walter and Eliza Hall uh, for Medical Research, uh, and of course, the Vincent's Institute. Uh, and we work very closely with them. We have a, a strong partnership with St Vincent's Hospital and their Diabetes Technology Research Group. We've done a lot of fantastic work about people who live with type 1 diabetes and their use of technology. And the orientation is um, not telling people how to use technology. It's understanding what people want from technology and how they can use it for their, um, their own purposes and to benefit and improve their lives. Initially enough, we did a survey through the NDSS database um, of people with type 1 diabetes and technology. We had almost 5,000 responses, uh, which tells me and tells you and, and the listeners that this is a really important issue and people want to have their views. We've seen a lot of, <clears throat> if you like, do-it-yourself people on um, the internet uh, coming up with closed-loop systems uh, and their own variants of technology because they're impatient about uh, using technology to improve their lives. Um, so that's a really important aspect of some of the work we've done. Um, and the people at St Vincent's you know, absolutely get the fact that this is not about telling people with type 1 diabetes how to use technology. It's about listening to them about what they want and how we can support them. And the final thread, like any organisation, we have had to be mindful of our financial sustainability. We, we get money from government. That money is quitted in and out, if you like. Um, and um, identifying uh, revenue streams that are not government-reliant or uh, 
um, on capricious bequests and other arrangements is really important and we've made huge strides in that area. It's certainly a loss. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, in terms of moving forward and, and the challenges that lie ahead for Diabetes in Victoria, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I think everyone will say, whether it be in, in sport, in business, in you name it, um, the, the goal of someone is to leave a, an organisation better when they leave than, than when they entered it. And, and I don't think there's any doubt, Craig, that you can say that uh, that's what you've done with Diabetes Victoria. But what are the main challenges that lie ahead? I'm, I'm imagining that, you know, with things are changing all the time and I feel that over the last couple of years in particular, there's been so many changes in technologies and research and all these kinds of things. What What is next for Diabetes Victoria and what do you envisage that, uh, yeah, that the main challenges will be? As I look back um, over the past nine years and, and also to some extent look forward, there are a couple of significant challenges. I think we've made progress in how we engage with and try and improve the experience of Aboriginal communities who live with diabetes. Could we have done more? There is an enormous challenge. The rates of diabetes in Indigenous communities are three to four times that in non-Indigenous communities. Um, we talk about um, the acute pandemic that we've had with COVID-19. There is a chronic pandemic of type 2 diabetes in Aboriginal communities. I look back and think, you know, could we have done more? There is an awful lot still to do. It's also the case that in uh, relation to um, multicultural communities, um, we often say that we, we like the fact that Australia is a, a great multicultural hub where people have come from all over the world um, and have added a lot to the Australian society. What played out during the lockdowns was that um, whilst that is true, we weren't particularly good at communicating with uh, those communities about the public health messages because we didn't understand in a culturally sensitive way about their family structures, about how they got together and so forth. Um, and that produced enormous difficulties in the western suburbs of Melbourne and in the western suburbs of Sydney. So I think there's a lot more to be done um, in relation to how we engage with and get better outcomes for those multicultural communities. A lot of those communities, when they change uh, settings, when they change diet and so forth, tend to be more at risk of type 2 diabetes than other communities. And we've seen that in countries such as um, India, Indonesia and China, where there have been mass migrations to urban areas um, and as a result there's been an explosion in type 2 diabetes. I also think that we probably haven't done enough in prevention, not just in preventing people at risk of type 2 diabetes, but people... Uh, who live with diabetes and their complications. Uh, in Victoria, we have the LIFE program um, and we've done a lot in prevention. There isn't a national type 2 diabetes prevention program. We really think there should be um, and we're advocating for that. And I think the final challenge is um, the enigma that is diabetes. Now, you and I and other people know that diabetes is a serious and complex condition. We know that diabetes now accounts for the single greatest burden of disease in this country. Yet, it doesn't do well in terms of the amount of money allocated to research, and it doesn't do well in terms of philanthropic support. Now, when I was at uh, Peter Mac, um, there's a lot of money flowing through to cancer research, a lot of money uh, available through philanthropists and so forth, because cancer is something that people relate to. Yet, it is difficult for diabetes to get to that same level. In my 10 years, yeah, I've seen a lot of focus on um, dementia 
and on mental health. They've now been very good at attracting money for research um, and for philanthropy uh, to support uh, a whole lot of activities in that area. Why doesn't that happen with diabetes? We just haven't been able to convince people that diabetes is worthy of a lot of research funding uh, and philanthropic support. So for me, that's an enigma, a frustration, and I'd put that down as uh, something that I would like to see change over time. Uh, we're working on it, but it's not going to happen in the, the short term. It's funny you say that. You know, I talk with you know other people. We, we talk about connecting with other people with diabetes, and that's one of the great parts of my role as an ambassador and hosting this podcast is I meet so many different people. But one interesting conversation that I've had recently is what what would you change about diabetes or the perceptions of it? And in some ways, you wish that uh, people realize that you can live with it and it, it doesn't have to define you and change your life. But in other ways, you actually also wish that people understood how serious it is and all the decisions you had to go through every day and the actual impact it has on your life. Because there are so many decisions, whether it be sitting, you know, going out for lunch or for dinner with your friends and you're working out how much insulin do I need and, you know, all those kinds of how long until dinner arrives or am I okay to drive a car? Do I need to test my sugars? Am I on the way up? Am I on the way down? All these questions that we've, you know, discussed um, so many times before. And I just think, yeah, there are some times where I wish people understood that you can live a normal, for want of a better word, life um, while living with diabetes. But on the other end of the spectrum, I do think that I wish there was an understanding of uh, people without who don't have it, how difficult it is and how much it does actually impact on your life. Because I totally agree that sometimes I think, um, yeah, it can be glossed over a little bit compared to some of the other things that, you, as you said, are, are much more, I guess, uh, ingrained in the Australian society in terms of not taken seriously, that's not the right way to put it, but in terms of the philanthropy support and all those kinds of things, yeah. there's no doubt about that, in my mind anyway. Um, but but I suppose you you moving um, on, I suppose that also gives a, a, an opportunity for someone else to step into your role. And our new CEO, Glenn Noonan, who has been involved with Diabetes Victoria for a long time, and I've been fortunate enough to meet Glenn. I've, I've had a coffee with him. I've met Glenn at... Um, you know, numerous functions over the years. We had his son, Lockie, on this podcast a couple of years ago. Um, he's obviously incredibly successful in, in his personal uh, work career to date. Well, what can you tell us about our new CEO, Glenn Noonan? Well, he is well known to the Victorian diabetes community. As you said, he's uh, been a board director of Diabetes Victoria for 11 years and president since 2019. Now, Glenn's been um, with PricewaterhouseCoopers for a long time and he's a senior partner. Um, Glenn got involved with diabetes because Lockie was diagnosed with diabetes uh, early on uh, and he wanted to give back. Um, and over time, that's driven his passion for diabetes. Um, and you know, we're delighted that uh, he wants a, a change in career to dedicate uh, you know, his professional life to doing what he can to support people with diabetes. You know, Glenn is a very considered uh, person. Uh, I think he'll bring um, a network of commercial and other um, connections to Diabetes Victoria will certainly help us with you know, issues of our um, partnerships and financial sustainability. Uh, but Glenn is you know, very close to all of the issues of Diabetes Victoria. You know, I'm you know, someone who briefs him regularly. Uh, he's been on the, the board of Diabetes Australia, so he's connected at that national level. Uh, I think you'll find that there'll be a degree of stability and continuity in Diabetes Victoria. Um, and I think Glenn will um, take the work that I've been doing forward He'll be his own man. He'll make his own decisions. But I think the Victorian diabetes community can be assured that Glenn will be someone who will carry on um, a lot of the work that's been 
established over the past decade. Um, and you know, we're all looking forward to how he'll shape Diabetes Victoria to reflect you know, what's important to him. But um, as opposed to me, who don't who doesn't have any direct connection with diabetes, Glenn uh, has that lived experience connection, which I think you know, will resonate with a lot of people in the Victorian diabetes community. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about that. And I think, you know, as someone living with diabetes in Victoria, obviously I have met Glenn and might be a little bit biased, but there's no doubt it feels like we're getting someone who, like yourself, Craig, is on our side, for want of a better phrase, and uh, will continue to advocate for, for us and, and all of us impacted by diabetes. But yourself, Craig, what are your plans after you retire from full-time work? As I said at the top of the show, it's been a pretty full-on and, and storied career thus far. Uh, yes, and I'm uh, reflecting on you know, all of the various jobs uh, I've had, some of which you uh, summarised in the introduction. Uh, yes, I am retiring from full-time work, but I'll still be involved on a part-time basis. Um, I'm involved in a lot of research projects which are either underway or about to get underway, and I'd like to complete my involvement there. Uh, I'm mentoring with my professional colleague, uh, college, um, and uh, I'll be involved in you know, a number of other um, aspects of diabetes and also cancer as well, given that I spent nine years at, at Peter Mac. I guess the, the main change for me is that Rosemary and I are actually moving to London. Uh, we're moving very shortly. Um, our two adult daughters have been in England for a little while. Uh, lockdown's been tough in Melbourne, but lockdown in England's been just as tough. Um, we haven't seen our eldest daughter for two years, uh, and my youngest daughter is uh, just underway with a four-year PhD at UCL in London. Uh, so we're going to spend six months of the next couple of years uh, based in London um, and uh, be able to spend time with our daughters. Um, ironically, both our daughters were born in London. Uh, we brought them back here so that they could grow up as Australians, uh, having um, proximity to um, Australian grandparents. And ironically, they're now dragging their parents back to England. So sometimes these things go full circle. So I'll still be involved, uh, doing lots of things. Uh, but being liberated from full-time work. Uh, but I can assure you and uh, everyone else that I'll still be very interested in diabetes. Um, I am um, keen to connect with Diabetes UK, which is a great organisation. I know Chief Askew, the Chief Executive, well, I visited Diabetes UK, and I'll certainly want to connect with them and see what I can do to work with them going forward on a part-time basis. It all sounds very exciting. I mean, yeah, I, ca I can't imagine what it would have been like for so many people out there to have not seen family, friends, loved ones, etc., for, for such a long period of time. Obviously, we understand we're all trying to do the right thing for the, for the greater good, but there's no doubt of, of how difficult that must have been for, for so many people, including yourself, Craig, over yeah. the last couple of years. So um, I do wish you all, all the very best with that. Um, but before we wrap up, I mean, I just want to say from myself, I mean, it's, you know, I think it was 2014 where I initially got involved with Diabetes Victoria um, and have been an ambassador ever since. And, and I've loved my time there. But, um, you know, in my entire time with Diabetes Victoria and, and working in this capacity, I mean, you've been the CEO and I associate you with Diabetes Victoria. So it's going to be a very surreal or, or different feeling when, when you are gone. Um, because as I said, I, I don't know Diabetes Victoria really without you. So um, it's going to be really, really strange for myself, and I'm sure there are so many people listening in who, who can relate to something similar, who have become so used to you, and, and there's a sense of comfort and calm. And, and um, yeah, as I said, it's been great to have you, I guess, advocating for us on our behalf. So um, it's going to be a little bit strange for myself, and, uh, yeah, it's going to be you know, not, not to get too sentimental, but um, it's, it's going to feel very different with, uh, with you going, Craig. Yes, and uh, I'll miss it too. Uh, I'll miss all the people. Uh, I'll miss the 
commitment and passion that uh, people working with Diabetes Victoria have displayed, uh, and I'll miss the, the great work that uh, people like you have done on our behalf. So thank you, Jack, and thank you for all your great work as an ambassador of Diabetes Victoria. I'll still keep a, a close eye on things, but it'll be from a distance. No, thank you, mate. And, and I just, I do have a little message on behalf of everyone at Diabetes Victoria. I mean, you have been so respected and and such an admired leader um, and everyone, you know, I speak on their behalf, um, myself, but but also them. You will be missed. Um, your contribution has been massive and it has been greatly appreciated by everyone. Those of us living, by, living with diabetes, those of us at risk of diabetes, those of us impacted in some way, you've represented our interests. You've been a very effective voice for the past nine years. So, Thank you very much for the past nine years and thank you for joining me uh, on the official Diabetes Victoria podcast for the second time, our first dual guest, Craig Bennett. Thank you very much, Jack, and uh, all the best to you and uh, I hope uh, your diabetes uh, becomes um, you know, less of an issue for you and that you can get on with all the great work that you're doing um, and enjoy the footy as it gets underway tonight. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the program. If you'd like to contact us, it's very easy. Simply send an email to podcast at diabetesvic.org.au. Or, of course, all the information you'll need is on the website, diabetesvic.org.au.